Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes are free, nearly 500 episodes and counting. You can listen for free online via iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. You can listen via the Other People app, which is also free. Uh, bottom line, everything's free. So I count on the support of regular listeners to help keep the show going. If you would like to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Okay? Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. What a struggle, you know? Incredible. It's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. So hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate that. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California in September of 2017. And Margaret Wilkerson Sexton is my guest. Her new novel is available from Counterpoint. It is called A Kind of Freedom. And uh, she and I had a lot to talk about. She lives right up the road from me in Oakland, California, but uh, is originally from New Orleans, where I also have some family. So there was much to discuss. It was a great pleasure talking with her. And that conversation is coming up in just a bit. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. Her novel, again, is called A Kind of Freedom. So I mentioned uh, just a minute ago that it's September 2017. And uh, as of September 14th, 2017, the Other People podcast will officially be uh, six years old. It started on uh, September 14th, 2011. That was the first time I ever posted an episode of this program. And so now I, you know, I look up. Six years have gone by. We're now moving into the seventh year of this program. For, for a full six years of my life, I have been having a conversation and recording it <laughs> and posting it on the internet. Having a conversation with a uh, writerly person an hour at a time, every week, sometimes twice a week. I mean, for the first, what was it? For the first four years of this podcast, I did this twice a week. And I had to, you know, had to scale it back. Once, uh, you know, we had our second child, but you know, it's a lot of conversations and it strikes me as kind of an odd thing to do, or it seems odd to me that I keep doing this. It's like, oh my God, 
Now it's the seventh year and I'm still doing this. I'm still recording myself, having conversations with people, putting them on the internet. So I read, uh, recently this quote from Thomas Merton. He's like this Catholic monk slash Buddhist slash, uh, you know, writerly, he's a writerly hybrid monk. (laughs) And, uh, he wrote the seven story mountain. It's like a client, you know, it's in the canon. And he says, quote, the rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form of contemporary violence to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything is to succumb to violence. So the reason I, I, uh, I think this quote resonated with me is because I struggle a little bit with trying to do too many things or to, to feeling so busy, trying to fit everything in. And yet I'm excited about a lot of different things and I want to do all these different things. But I, I read that and I was like, oh God, am I a violent man? Am I doing great violence to myself by trying to wedge podcasting into my life, by trying to write, uh, though lately I haven't been doing much of that, trying to you know work a job, have a family, do this, do that. I think I talked about this last week. And I, I, this feeling in the morning, especially of being like really hurried, never being able to like get out the door on time. Always feel like I'm running late, you know, that feeling. So then I read another quote. This is from D.H. Lawrence. And he says, men are not free when they are doing just what they like. Men are only free when they are doing what the deepest self likes. And that takes some diving. So then I'm like, oh God, like, what is my deepest self like? Do I even know? Do I know what my deepest self likes? And I guess like what your deepest self likes is that thing you would do anyway, right? Would I write if I didn't? I mean, I guess I would. I guess I kind of always have, or at least I come back to it. I'm not one of these people who compulsively does it every day. And then I sort of, you know, I sort of stopped and thought like, well, maybe it's this podcast. <laughs> it's my deepest self like podcasting because I keep coming back to, it. I keep doing it, done it every week for six years. And I suppose I do. I like to, uh, have honest conversations. Like I need them. And I, and then I guess this impulse to share them is born of some suspicion that other people need them too. And, uh, just this, this sort of uh, way that I'm wired where I feel very uncomfortable when things that need to be said are not being said, or if I feel like things are being repressed, like I love openness. I love, uh, you know, candor trying to bring a little bit more of that, but all, but also, you know, uh, mindful, mindful candor, not just like blurting out any old thing. So I don't know, like that's what's on my mind this week. You know, not wanting to get caught in this trap of uh, busyness, constant activity, which I guess is a form of violence. And then also like wanting to like figure out what my deepest self likes and to try to make sure that I don't waste my life and that I spend it doing things that are of deep meaning to me before it's over like that. 
It's like, what's the best use of my time? And it's like, you know, there's this pursuit of uh, wealth, which I definitely feel like as a father, like I feel like I got to support my family. I live in an expensive city. So I understand, you know, when I'm reading it, I read this stuff and it's like, you know, the pursuit of wealth is a folly. It's not going to make you happy. And I get that. But I also, uh, you know, I'm a practical person. I have, uh, I have kids. You got to pay the bills. And then you also want to build a shelter against a rainy day. I don't feel like that is a folly. I feel like that's just a reality. And so, you know, it's, but it's, but it, you know, it could be carried too far. Like, where's the line? Where's the, you know, where's the fulcrum or like the point of balance? That's the question. God, I'm getting deep in the monologue today as the uh, other people podcast enters its seventh year. It's like, I think these anniversaries make me a little bit, uh, melodramatic. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton is the guest. Uh, her novel, A Kind of Freedom, is out there now from Counterpoint Press. She was an absolute delight to talk with. And uh, I'm so pleased to catch her here uh, as this book makes its way into the world. So without any further ado, this is my conversation with Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. I lived there until I was 12 and my mom and I, my mom randomly moved us to Connecticut. And I say it was random because she, um, she, we initially thought we were going to Atlanta. And so we would go to Atlanta every weekend and look at houses. She had a real estate agent in Atlanta and then we, my uncle got a job at Duracell working in Bethel, Connecticut, which is a very small city in Connecticut. And we went there for the summer to live with him and just visit and get a feel for it. And I thought it was just a vacation, but my mom was scoping it out oh. as a place to live. And we ended up moving there that fall. I, I went outside of my house one day and, um, we always thought she was just talking about it because she had talked about Atlanta and now she was talking about moving to Connecticut. But I went outside of my house one day and there was a moving van. Whoa. Yeah. So we moved to Connecticut. No, wait, is Bethel, uh, I don't, I don't know its geography within the state. Is that, uh, proximal, uh, it's, it's is it very near close New York? to Danbury. It's about an hour and a half from okay. New York. Yeah. And, um, very small, not diverse at all, a blue collar city. And, um, in my school of 800, in my middle school of 800, there were six black kids. And okay. so I was coming from New Orleans and my school in New Orleans was all black. Right. So it was a bit of a culture shock, but I didn't think of it like that. 
at that time. I, I was so young. I was only 12. But I remember when I would tell people that I had moved to Connecticut, when I would go back home to New Orleans, I would tell people, you know, oh, we, we just moved to Connecticut. And they would say, Connecticut, oh, my God, are you the only one there? They they seemed to know, but I didn't know because I was a child. Okay, so, but at, at age 12, that's interesting to me mm-hmm. because my daughter goes to a school um, where she is a minority or, like, close uh-huh. to it. Like, she goes to school with a lot of Korean kids, yeah. African-American kids. Like, she's blind to it all. That's great. And I love it. And yeah. I, but I'm always like, when is like when does that, when does that dawn on people? Like, I know it's different for everybody, but at age 12, you were still pretty unaware well well i let me say this um i was i was hyper aware of race at age 12 but i just didn't know to expect it in connecticut because i don't think i knew at age 12 that this that the country is mapped out according to race so like if you tell a person who's you know reasonably knowledgeable about the country that you're living in connecticut they'll know oh that's there aren't a lot of black people there for various reasons, but I didn't know that. I thought there was just as good a chance that there would be black people in Connecticut as there would be in Louisiana because I just didn't know the history of it. Right. But I I was definitely super aware of race from, I don't know, the age of six because in New Orleans, it was very um, top of mind. Color was top of mind and race was top of mind. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I was raised, my, my uh, parents are both from Louisiana. All yeah. my extended families from Louisiana, but I was raised in Wisconsin, born in Milwaukee oh, wow. and then raised in Indiana. And I remember growing up, going down and being uh, like, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is a, um, is it paradox or irony that to like coming from a place like Wisconsin and being like, Wow, you know, everyone down here in Louisiana, there's a lot of racism yeah. in my family. Yeah. In like it, it's it's around. Yeah. And yet, uh I was coming from a place in Wisconsin where there were almost no black people. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying because okay, this is an example. I had to go to Jackson, Mississippi for this book festival a few weeks ago and I really didn't want to go. It was right around the Charlottesville time. Uh-huh. And I just didn't want to go. I was so nervous about it. I don't travel to the deep south like that. I don't consider New Orleans to be part of the deep south, you know. So I I was nervous. And then I get there. I, I get on the plane. The woman I sat next to on the plane is from Jackson. We have the best conversation. She's a white woman. We have the best conversation. She gives me her phone number. She tells me to call her. And she just keeps telling me to call her if I need anything. And, you know, it. she said it so much that I knew it was genuine. Yeah. And, I mean, it was like that the whole weekend. Everybody I met was so kind. Did you call her? No. <laughs> 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 no, I didn't call but her. But, I mean, you know, well, you, mean, you know, it'd be awkward. Yeah. But, um, but I appreciated the gesture, and I felt like if I needed something, I really could have called her. If I, you know, if I needed help or I needed a question about, I had a question about the city, and it was like that the whole weekend. People, you know, regardless of the race, were were so kind and welcoming. And this is in Jackson, Mississippi, and um, you know, with with the recent uh president and and all this i i didn't know what to expect when i went there i i thought i might be bombarded with with i didn't know what to expect so um but it's funny because i live in oakland and i feel i have this feeling in oakland and the san francisco area that i'm so safe and that it's a bubble because everyone votes a certain way Uh but the truth is that um there's a lot of you know there's a lot of subtle stuff going on there a lot of subtle racism and discrimination because there just there isn't as much um, 
integration as there is there's forced integration in the south in many areas and in many ways right and in oakland and in san francisco you just don't see it as much they're they're just these discrete groups around but they're not really mingling and so it's funny how you expect it to be kosher in one place and you know it maybe it's not all the way and then you go to jackson mississippi and i everyone was just so kind and yeah and i and you know this is just anecdotal i understand the politics around each place but but it's interesting. I know what you mean about Wisconsin yeah, and well, expectations. And, well, yeah. And there's, I mean, that's the thing too, is that, uh, there's been so much talk with the Trump presidency and how we've seen the rise, you know, the rise and kind of this, uh, externalization of white nationalism in the public discourse. Yeah. And you're sort of seeing it and you're yeah. like, well, where was this? You know, it was living, where, where was it before then? I mean, it was here. Right. It just wasn't quite so brazen. Right. And so, uh, obviously it's unpleasant to see and, um, I, I would much prefer that it weren't there. Right. But there's also a part of me that's like, wow, these people are just out in the open. Like we can see them now. Yeah. And I wonder if as like a, a, a people, like as the American, like the American people try to cope with this, like, uh, to me, I kind of, I would kind of compare it to like a, a virus or something. Yeah. Like we need to, you we, need to see it you, to heal it. Yeah. You yeah. kind of need to see it to heal it. Cause it's like, um, I've had conversations with people on this show about places like Portland, oh. which has like a complicated racial past. And it's sort of like San Francisco where, you know, you think of it as this liberal bubble. Right. But these places, you know, I guess in places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, it's there, but it's, uh, it's more hidden. And then you get down into, uh, the deep South, as you put it, and there's yeah. a lot more people, um, I don't know, coexisting or there's a longer history or I don't know what it is, but I guess it's sort of uh, complicated. <laughs> yeah, it, there is something about the fact that they're forced to coexist in the South, and so they there's there's a history and a familiarity of of mingling that, and there's still racism, and it's still deep, and we're seeing it. But but it's weird because it seems like even racism, even with racism, there's a politeness and a and a familiarity between races. Okay. Do you know what I... No, I mean, I, okay. grew up, I grew up with a grandfather who was uncomfortable with the Cosby show. Uh-huh. Okay? But, like, uh-huh. I would go for... And he, you know, I love my grandfather. Of course. But of I, would course. Go, I would go for walks around his neighborhood in, like, deep Louisiana, like, down on the Gulf. Yeah. Like, the, the town that my dad grew up in is probably not going to be here in 50 years. Yeah. You know, it's, like, yeah. that deep into the, into the Gulf region. Yeah. And I would walk around his neighborhood... And he lived by the end of his life in a largely black neighborhood. It, is, okay. it had started as like an, an Italian immigrant community and then things changed over the years. Yeah. So he was, toward the end of his life, most of his neighbors were black. Right. And we would go for walks in the evening and he would just, talk, you know, like, hey, how you doing? Isn't that interesting? I mean, they were buddies. You I know? know. I find that so interesting. And I think about that a lot because I, it, it's hard to, to have those things juxtaposed and, and not have a disconnect. It, it's just it's just interesting to me. Yeah, it's yeah. Com- it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. So you go to Connecticut. You're 12 years old, and you're suddenly in this like pretty much all white school. Yeah. Um, I imagine was it difficult? Were people? I mean, what was the social experience like for you? Okay, that's a great question. Um, you know, I'll say that as soon as I got there, I lived in this townhome community, and as soon as I got there. 
there were these girls next door who took me in. They were twins and they took me in and I was just best friends with them for the whole time. So in that sense, and we played outside, things I never did in New Orleans. Right. We rode bikes outside and my mom didn't even know where I was a lot of the time, but she felt comfortable because it was such a sheltered community. She felt comfortable with me just riding my bike wherever and going wherever. And so that was really nice. That was, it was, I felt like that was like, uh, you know, an idyllic childhood and a, and a, um, a normal childhood in that sense. But you know, the, the, um, the kids there, they, uh, you know, there weren't many black people and the black people they were exposed to were all through television. And, and back then hip hop, I think was just starting to be super, super popular on MTV. And so there was a lot of stereotyping um, there was a lot of racism, but I got the impression, I really did get the impression that these were, these were kids who were trying to figure race out themselves and they were just playing with certain words and, and just, just kind of like, just kind of testing out. What they words? didn't understand racism. I was called the N word. Um, but in a, in a derogatory context or like oh, it a- was derogatory. Okay, yeah. Okay. But I, I really, I mean, I don't think, you know, these were 12 year old kids and I don't think. They maybe were hearing this from their parents. You uh-huh. know what I mean? And I think I think they were just throwing that out the way a, a child might call someone stupid or ugly. You know uh-huh. what I mean? I don't think I don't think they were racist yet. I think they were just hearing this from their parents. <laughs> they were in but, training. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, and just to be clear, when I said in a derogatory context, because I think sometimes, uh, especially oh, as I know kids, what you mean. Yeah. like white kids will co-opt the verna- yeah, yeah, vernacular yeah. of like hip hop music or Absolutely. whatever. Absolutely. But at that time, they weren't. That wasn't what it was. When it would happen, it was derogatory. And, um, but you know, it was weird because they were also trying to mimic black culture with the, with MTV being so popular at that time, they were dressing like rappers and they were, um, you know, all the music they listened to was black music. And so, um, there was that too. It was, it was interesting because they, they associated coolness with blackness, but they also were playing around with racism because I think, I bet in that city, I bet in that town, a lot of the parents, you know, were, because they had not been exposed to black people, were harboring racist ideas and thoughts. Yeah. Or yeah. fear. Yeah. So yeah. What, what is it? This has always been interesting to me in the way that you, like you talk about, you can have people who are racist or who are uncomfortable or afraid or whatever combination um, there is, but who uh, embrace and love and um, mimic black culture yeah, I, I I've noticed that my whole life. Okay, um, I was super into like Eric B and Rakeem when I was like in sixth grade. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Oh, but it doesn't. I, I don't often see it working in the reverse. I mean, sometimes there's uh, black people who like really love. Like, I mean, I'm not saying it never happens, but yeah, it's not nearly as prevalent. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't work both ways as much. Yeah, I think that's well. Let me think about that. Um, well. I think when when black people like things like like music, for instance, that's not of the black community, it's just it's just it would just be called they like rock music or they like country music. But but when it's a when it's something black, I think that um, that descriptor is there, the black descriptor. And so it um it, whereas with 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 black people being more interested in certain types of music that aren't of the black community, I think it would just be called you know regular music without that descriptor there, which uh, is interesting, right? Because um, 
black people are, are, are at the foundation of music in this country, but, but there's still that descriptor there to kind of just, um, to note that it's not regular or that it's not, you know, music per se. Right. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, it's country music. Right. It's not like white, white people. music. <laughs> exactly. There aren't that many black people who like country music. I can't stand pop country music. Well, I don't know. I don't want to say. I mean, I I don't like country music, but well, you know, I I was I haven't been exposed to it. Let me put it that way. I haven't been exposed to country music, but um but I do have some friends. Like my I'm thinking of my sorority sister who's black who um definitely listens to country music. I she just likes it. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think I think yeah, I yeah, I think Probably not as common, but definitely out there. Yeah, I remember watching. Mm-hmm. I was watching some sort of show. It's like an interview show, and that very question was asked to uh, like a panel of uh, I think there were like two black guests and a white guest, and one mm-hmm. of them, one of the black guests was like, "Listen, you know, I go to work. I'm listening to the man all week. I don't want to go home and put him on the stereo." Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I guess that's there's, interesting. You know, that made me laugh, but it's uh-huh. uh it's it's interesting to see how we have this problem of racism in the country and you have um even among these communities where the uh racism is uh becoming more externalized or more prevalent even these people yeah have their their hip hop albums I know <laughs> I know and I'm not sure whether that should make me feel better or worse yeah. you know <laughs> So okay yeah. so Connecticut you're growing up and then at some point you moved from Connecticut to Oakland? Well, I, I, um, so I lived in Connecticut for, I guess about six or seven years, but I ended up after I went to, I went to Bethel middle school for two years and that was this, you know, very, very non-diverse experience. And then, um, I, my mom heard about this boarding school Taft and my, my teacher at the time was thought that I should go to the school and so um, I checked it out. We ended up, I ended up going to Taft. And so Taft was about 40 minutes from where I was living. And Taft, because it was a boarding school, it kind of removed me from, my mother ended up moving to New Haven from Bethel, but it really didn't even matter where she lived because I was always on campus. I wasn't a day, I wasn't a boarder. I was a day student, oh. but I was still always on campus. I mean, I might, I might've gone home at nine o'clock at night every night. So after I started, how long was, how long was the commute home? It was 40 minutes so each, way. each way. She drove me each way until my mother had a baby when I was 16. So my junior year, I took the bus home from Taft, and that was a two-hour ride. How many kids are on that bus? Just you? It wasn't even a... It, was, it wasn't a school bus. It was a van. It was a city bus. Oh, it was I a took, city bus. Yeah, it was oh. a city bus. I took a city bus home, and it was a two-hour commute just in one direction. And then I had a teacher who drove me in the morning because she lived in New Haven. Okay. And that was very, that was very unusual that there was a, and I think she was only there for like that year, but it was a Spanish teacher and she lived in New Haven and she was commuting anyway. So she drove me. Now, most teachers at Taft lived on camp, lived on campus. Right. So it was very unusual. It was just kind of worked out. So she would drive me in the morning and then I would take the bus home in the afternoon. And, um, and then my senior year I got a car, but yeah, but because I was at that boarding school, I really didn't. I don't feel like I grew up in Connecticut. I feel like my best friend at the boarding school is also from New Orleans. Oh, no shit. And Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah. We met the first day. We were best friends the whole time. And um, so, you know, you feel like you're from everywhere because people are from all over the world. Yeah, what was and, Taft? Because Taft mm-hmm. is a very good school. I have a buddy who went to Taft. Okay. Um, what was, uh, but what was it like? You got a great education? You get a great education. Um, you know, funny thing is... I was coming from Bethel, so I thought Taft was the most diverse place ever. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was like, oh my gosh, there are 10 black kids in my class. That's amazing. Just in my <laughs> class. Right. I just, I loved Taft the first two years. And then, you know, high school is, is an issue for everybody, but it wasn't specific to Taft. I think Taft is a great school. And if, if there were more day students at Taft, I would send my own kids to Taft, but, um, I wouldn't want them to live there. So anyway, but, um, yeah, I don't know how people, I mean, I guess it's like, it depends on the circumstances and it's a great opportunity uh, for kids to get a, an excellent education, but to, to send your kid away when they're like 13 or 14, like, no, 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 I know. <laughs> I don't do know it. how people do it either. I'm already, I, I was devastated by preschool, yeah. preschool drop off. I cried for a month and I'm not trying to be funny. I cried for a month. So I can't even imagine expediting what has to happen anyway mm. when they go to college. I can't even imagine, but you know, I guess because my husband, actually, this is an interesting story. My husband, Almost went to Taft that year. No kidding. Yeah, because his father went to Taft, and I think his aunt went to Taft. Yeah, I'm sure of it. His aunt went to Taft. So um, it's just kind of in their family to do that. And I think sometimes if it's just like... What you do. Yeah, people don't really... It's just like what to expect. And, and, and then there were a lot of kids at Taft who actually like started the application process themselves. Like it wasn't driven by their parents. They my just wife, knew they wanted to do that. My wife talks about how like she would have loved to. I don't think she necessarily had exposure. She grew up in Minnesota and like that. But I mean, she's like, I would have done it in a heartbeat. Really? And I think like from my you know recollection, there's, I would not have been interested at, in ninth grade. I would not have I been know. like filing an application to go live on my own in Connecticut. I know the the self motivation that requires, and from yeah, from an eighth grader because you have to start in the eighth grade with that stuff. You have to take the test. You have to set all that stuff up. Yeah, I know it's interesting, but I do know people who were there who had just done it themselves and they just decided. Which that would be another thing if my if my children wanted to go. Oh my gosh, yeah. like, mom, I'm I'm tired of this arrangement. <laughs> right, need to upgrade. What and by the way, like I've always heard too that like when you're at boarding school. Because you're removed from, you know, like the nuclear family arrangement and you're sort of on your own yeah, and you're around your peer group and you have a little bit more independence and so on and so forth, but you're still in this very structured environment. Um, I've heard that there's lots of drugs, that it's lots of deviance. Like, is, was it more so in that boarding school environment than you think would, would have happened back in Ooh, Bethel? Yeah. Okay, I know it wasn't more than Bethel. Okay. Because in Bethel, in the seventh grade, they were doing drugs. Like, they were dropping acid in the seventh grade. I'm not kidding. Did you do that? Absolutely not. Okay. And I, I'm, I don't know what it was, but I think because in New Orleans, that wasn't happening. And I missed New Orleans so much when I moved to Connecticut. And I, I just had such an allegiance to that city. And I would go back for holidays, and I would go back in the summer. And I just felt like... A part of it was a pride in New Orleans and a pride in how I had been raised in New Orleans, you know, with the help of my grandparents and my aunts. It was a very, you know, there was a network of there was a village. Yeah. And I just felt like I couldn't let my 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 parents down. I couldn't let New Orleans down. And that's how I thought about about it, moving to Connecticut. And it's ironic, but that's how I thought about it. I thought I would never do that. I actually looked down on the people. And it was my friends were doing this stuff. My friends were all they all smoked cigarettes. I remember that. In the seventh and eighth grade, they all smoked cigarettes. Jesus. Yeah. And then. Who were these hoodlums? Uh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and they were doing all sorts of stuff. But I just always felt like I always looked down on it. And it's weird because it's, I don't know where that came from. I don't know. I definitely am not immune to peer pressure, but I don't know where that came from. But Taft, I didn't know that people were doing drugs at Taft until after I graduated. And my, um, I met up with a friend. And, um, he said, 
We, we were high the entire right. time. Right. <laughs> he did. He was like, remember how so-and-so used to sell weed? And remember how we smoked every night after um, sit-down dinner? And I was like, what? <laughs> I don't remember anybody smoking. I remember I had one sip of a drink at my senior prom, and I felt like I was just, you know, doing too much. But apparently... I knew that there were kids selling Ritalin. I knew that there were kids doing that kind of stuff, but I didn't know people were smoking weed. What but, were you? What were you doing? You studying? You're I doing your. You're doing your I, work. I wasn't even. I was. I, I was hanging out. I mean, I was socializing, but I guess it was with the wrong people or the right people. <laughs> yeah, you did <laughs> Which well. Which one? <laughs> Got your stuff done. But you had and you had a prom at Taft. We had something called formal every year, which every grade was invited to. So oh. it was it was our version of prom, but everybody went. All four classes went. There's not prom at boarding school. There's, there's no. formal. Right. <laughs> everyone's in there. Everyone's in there. Haute couture. Like, right. You know. <laughs> um, okay. So you you are you know it sounds like a pretty good kid. You're getting. Yeah, a, you're I getting, guess I was in retrospect. I guess get, I was. You're getting a good education. Are you? Are you a book nerd? Like early? Like do you know what I'm saying? Like were you gravitating yeah. towards literature in high school? I, you know, I was. That's where Taft is. Is where I learned that I wanted to be a writer. Okay. And I always say that, but Taft was a really special place because, um, you know, I was an only child growing up, so I read constantly. Especially because in the sixth grade, my mother, who never came to the morning assemblies, decided to come to this one morning assembly where the principal said no one should be letting their child watch TV during the week. She happened to come to that one, my mother, and she said, okay, no more TV during the week. And just from that one assembly. And so I was no longer allowed to watch TV during the week. So I was an only child. I didn't have anything else to do. So I would just read constantly. I would read everything. And then um, I get to Taft and I kind of had it in my head at that point that I wanted to be a writer because I had written something in grade school that people really liked. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll do that. What I was seemed, it? It was, well, there was an essay in middle school and then there was a poem in elementary school, but the essay in middle school was actually, I had forgotten about it until just now, but this, this teacher I had singled me out for having written this essay. And she said, um, she said her husband was teaching college students and he said he couldn't get any one of them to write well. And she pulled this essay out and she said, and I showed him this essay and I said, my eighth grader can write well. I remember that. Okay. You and know what? You're about the, I've done almost 500 of these. I bet really? you're, you're like between 50 and a hundred people that I've talked to on this show have a anecdote very similar to that where they, where wow. they can, where they can remember with very specific detail, yeah. like a junior high school teacher who singled them out and told them they were good at writing and wow. that, that had a formative impact. Oh my gosh, I have the chills. That's amazing because it's funny, I didn't remember it. It was buried, yeah. you know, until I sat down. I was always thinking of the poem in elementary school, but no, there was this woman and I'm, I can see her now and I don't remember her name, but it really makes you think, you know, we should all be teachers or something because you can have such an impact and you can have such a broad impact. Like It's amazing what happens when you tell somebody they're good at something. I know, give them isn't a little, it? Like positive reinforcement. I know. You and people internalize that. I had the same exact thing happen. Okay. When I was like in seventh or eighth grade. Yeah. Somebody said, you should be a writer. And, wow. And you know, I'm so clueless. I'm like, okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you need somebody to tell you, like, tell me what yeah, I'm good at. Yeah, you do. And yeah, it, it's just, it guides you. And then, you know, as a kid, you like positive feedback. So you want to do more of whatever's getting you positive feedback. So I got to Taft and, you know, um, I was coming from Bethel Middle School, which was a public school. And so um, there was some catch up there the first year because I just wasn't trained, you know, to be to be studying at the level that Taft was. 
So um, there was some catch up in most subjects, but not in English. In English, it just came so easily. And again, I got so much positive feedback. So I just started telling people I was going to be a writer. I would tell everybody just thought of me that way. So I would write. I was writing a column in the newspaper there. Um, we started a, a, a poetry um, a poetry book called Red Ink that came out my senior year. And I was heavily involved with that. And um, it was just people just, oh, the the other big thing that Taft did, they let you do these independent study projects your senior year where you could you could say, I don't want to take history, but I'll do my own thing for um, for the semester or for the year. And I decided to write a book that year. So my senior year, I wrote a book and they let me do that. And they gave me an advisor and Wait, all that. you wrote an entire book your senior year of yeah, high school? Yeah, I did. I oh. mean, it wasn't any good. But, okay. you know, just the just the fact that they let me do that. What was it called? Um, Shadows of Another Day. That's not, yeah. that's not bad. Because, like, I mean, it, I was thinking, like, red ink. Shadows yeah. of Another like, Day. These, these are not embarrassingly, like, high no. school pretentious. And my mom still thinks I should, like, put that book out. She's like, I have the book in the basement <laughs> if you want it. <laughs> it will one day be archived in your papers at the, uh, you know, the uh, Mishner Center. Uh-huh. So, okay. So, you go to Taft. Like, I guess a, a question that comes to mind, you're uh, an African-American girl raised in uh, Bethel. Is that right? Bethel, yeah, for and, a couple years. And then you go to Taft, which is predominantly white. Oh, yeah, no so, question. So, like, that's an education in and of itself. Like, did you get, do you feel like, do you look back on that? Like, wow, I got an, a unique education to be in this situation where I was, um, you know, uh, the minority. Like, I'm, I'm yeah. surrounded by all these white people. And, like, do, like, does that give you any, like, that give you any insight or hmm. armor or any? Did you learn anything? Wow, that's a really good question. You know, I'm comfortable with it now. I, I'm, com- I'm comfortable with it. I'm always the minority, and I don't even think about it anymore. I'm just comfortable with it. Whereas, for instance, um, I met my husband who's white in Trinidad. We were on this foreign study program in Trinidad, and he was the minority there. Yeah. And he wasn't used to it. He became comfortable with it, but he wasn't used to it. You know, it was something he noticed. Right. Because it was the first time. But I would never notice being the minority in a room. And I, I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's been, I think it's been good because I can operate in both worlds. And I, I feel like, especially in terms of, um, it's coming out more with this book. I've noticed, I feel like I can be kind of a, um, a bridge and kind of, um, someone who can explain things to people who might not be exposed to, um, certain issues in the black community. I feel like I can, I can be a spokesperson for that. And I'm, I'm okay doing that because I know a lot of people feel like, um, um, you know, white people should be taking the initiative on researching these matters themselves. And I, I get that. I mean, that would be ideal. But to the extent that they're not, I'm OK educating people because I I feel that I've been blessed to have a little bit of a platform right now. And so I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable helping people, especially people who are, you know, people who pick up this book. They're like they're almost there anyway, you know, so right. I'm, I'm comfortable doing that. I'm comfortable kind of um helping them grasp certain issues. Yeah. It's funny. You call it, like you use the, the metaphor bridge. There's it made me think of like that David Remnick book about Obama. Oh, where like just unique set of, uh, experiences in his upbringing, yeah. like white mother, black father. Right. But, uh, I guess that make that makes a lot of sense. You, and I hadn't, you know, if you hadn't asked that question, I don't think I had consciously thought of that, but, um, but you know, yeah, that's, that's what I would say. I, I think I, I feel I feel comfortable in both places. So well, it just seems to me that there needs to be 
like like the more dialogue the better like however messy yeah. however how, like you, people have to be able and they have to be able to make mistakes there has to be c- conversation and um you know i guess like so much of the dialogue that i see in in modern life plays out on social media on a day right. on a day to day right and man that can get um it can make you feel jumpy yeah because you're like boy you better you say one wrong thing and especially if you have a lot of followers like if i say oh, if, if i say one wow. wrong if i say one wrong thing yeah <laughs> like three people are like dude <laughs> but i mean like when you see these higher profile accounts, i know i know and it works both ways and uh you know i can think there's a lot of celebrity accounts but it's also you know there are writers who have big followings and like they get into these conversations and you see it play out and you know there's a part of me that's like wow everybody needs to take a breath everybody needs to be a little bit kinder and give people some space. I, mean, I think so. But- I think so. I mean, and I think a lot of it is um, some people have good intentions and make mistakes. And I think definitely there should be some leeway for that because that's how you learn is you make mistakes. I mean, that's what I tell my children who are, you know, who are small that you, you learn through making mistakes. Right. And um, so I think people with good intentions, especially should be given some leniency. And then now you have other people who are just ignorant and they seem comfortable being ignorant and, and trolls. Right. And, Trolls, and then even some people who just, you know, are just comfortable being ignorant, and and they'll say something about which they have no immediate um, experience or knowledge, and and they feel comfortable, you know, being assertive about that. Whereas you have people who come at it like, you know, from a more like um, from a place of, you know, I'd like to learn about this, and I'm just I'm just trying to have a conversation, and that to me. I think it should be, I think it should be treated with, with more, um, with kindness. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel like this? Because this plays out a lot in Berkeley, which is near where you live in yeah. Brooklyn, where, you know, they will, uh, like Berkeley campus will ban certain people from speaking on campus. Yeah. There are these like pretty like gnarly protests. And, um, sometimes I'm like, yes, you know, like, yeah. and then other times I'm like, Hey, listen, you know, like this is what I get a little, we- I get a little bit, um, jittery about, uh, freedom of speech issues. Mm-hmm. And I know it's like, I don't know, there are complicated arguments around this where, mm-hmm. where it's like certain people, they shouldn't be given a platform. And then I'm like, but yeah, this feels like, this feels sort of like a, a dovetail. Like the far left can sometimes feel like dovetailing with the far right in terms of its politics around this. Do, do you get, do you know what I No, said? yeah, for sure. And it's scary because, you know, because of who's in power now, if they decided that we shouldn't be given or that I shouldn't be given a platform, you right. know, you don't, you don't want to silence everybody. I know it's, I mean, logically, I, I see what you're saying logically. And I, I agree logically. I think, you know, freedom of speech is there for a reason, but I'm always happy personally when they ban certain people, like who? you know what okay, I mean? So like, let's take, let's take, <laughs> cause this is cause like Ann Coulter, I, uh-huh. f- I find her like repellent. And she's yeah. like a, a you know media figure. She's out in the culture, uh-huh. and she's just sort of hateful. She's she's just a troll. Yeah. Um, but if she, if if like the college Republicans at yeah. UC Berkeley invite her to come speak, uh huh, I would say, great, protest, hold your signs up, yeah, you know. But like, let her go talk to her little troll minions. But protest, like show yeah. up, and show up in mass. Like that's your right. Yeah. But like to just ban her from speaking, like I wonder, like that's where I that's that's the line that's hard for me to to find. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I I think that's probably right to just to just have people protesting and at Berkeley the majority of people would be protesting, so that'd be great, <laughs> right? And nobody would really be sitting there listening to her. But um, yeah, I I mean I I get that. 
But if they were to ban her personally, you know, the part of me that's not a lawyer and the part of me that's not logical would be like, oh, good. They banned her from yeah. speaking. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. But the problem is like, like, what kind of precedent does that set? Right. It could be turned back against, uh-huh. you know, the same logic that like, it, like the same logic could be twisted right. to ban somebody with whom we agree. Right. And the other thing too, is that when you go through these, these big, huge, we're going to ban you, blah, blah, blah. Like it creates a lot of publicity. And so you, oh. I think you wind up sometimes shining too much light on them. That's a good point. Like let her come speak her yeah. repellent nonsense, protest her. That's a good point. The, the protesters are going to dwarf her little audience anyway. Right. Like, you know, it seems to me like that's maybe the better way to go. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's it just, it's it, it just, I don't know. It's something that I notice a lot. And I know again, I notice it via social media. Yeah. And I have genuine questions about where the line is. Right. Like, what's the right thing? I know. You know? I know. It's hard to know. It it really is. It's hard to know. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess people who provoke hatred that would rise to the level of violence, maybe, uh-huh. um, would be a good standard. Yeah, right. Um, but it's really, but you like, know, it's tricky. <laughs> yeah, because it's like, yeah. well, she, she spews some serious hatred. Yeah. Like, it could potentially yeah. incite violence in somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Like, because it depends on who her audience is. Right. There's somebody who's got, like, a hair-trigger temper who's, like, primed. Right. It won't take very much. I know. It's it's really hard to know. Mm. It really is. It's, it's weird times. And it's weird, it's weird, uh, it's just weird to see it out in the fore. And it's so disturbing to see, uh, you know, the White House occupied by people who um agree with this stuff or or at least offer it safe harbor exactly it's just you know we're in just twisted times very much so Uh, very much so so all right let's get back to your your biography a little bit here you leave taft and you know you haven't mentioned your dad was your dad in the picture growing up oh yeah 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 oh my gosh yeah my dad um he's the person who told me i should be a writer first oh and he lives in New Orleans now. So that's why I was always in New Orleans anyway. I moved with my mom to live uh, in Connecticut. But, I mean, I went home for every holiday. I, I spent every summer in New Orleans, the entire summer. So, um, yeah, my dad is my biggest cheerleader. Gotcha. Yeah. he's um, And he's a lifelong New Orleans guy? Yeah, he's from Baton Rouge, but he's he's been in New Orleans for I don't know fifty years or something like that. Like Baton Rouge proper? Or? Yeah, okay. Baton Rouge. My mom, uh-huh. my mom was raised in a town called Plaquemine. Do you know it? I've heard of it, but I don't know it. Yeah. You know what I, I mean? mean? But I've heard the name. It's like one stoplight. I okay. Mean, yeah. Yep. Yep. So, right, like you know, it's just like what's the name of the big bridge in Baton Rouge? But it's like you know, uh-huh. you, I just remember growing up, going down there for holidays. You drive over the bridge. Okay. You take the exit. It's like Port Allen or something like that. He Bat- would know. Yeah. I don't know, um, but he would. He would know that. Yeah. So he's, um, yeah. So he's my biggest fan, and uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he was around. You guys have a relationship. I just didn't hear you talk. About oh it. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. when when you leave Taft, you go to. I went to um, I went to Dartmouth in New Hampshire. Okay, and that was the greatest experience ever for me. I loved Dartmouth. That's where I, I met my husband, my my best friends, and um, and I continued writing there. I studied creative writing at Dartmouth, and um, and but I studied poetry. So you know, I, I didn't have any I didn't have any dreams of like being a poet full time. So when I left Dartmouth. I decided to go to law school. <laughs> oh, those dreams of being a full-time poet. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, we went to the Dominican Republic for a year. My husband and I, we, were, we weren't married then. We went to the Dominican Republic for a year, and I worked for a civil rights organization there, and I wrote 
I actually wrote a book, but it wasn't this one. And the book was about an African-American girl who's from New Orleans. She goes to the Dominican Republic and um, she's... I don't see any parallels. Right. <laughs> and she's trying to help this struggling community. But she's so triggered by the aspects of the Dominican Republic that remind her of New Orleans, namely colorism, that she ends up contributing more to the destruction of the community than, and, than and is good. By colorism, just for people listening, that means mm-hmm. like the, the black people like discriminating against one another based on the different shades of brown. Exactly, within the race. Gotcha. Exactly. Yeah, and there's like that's a thing about um, the Gulf Coast and New Orleans... Um, there's a huge Caribbean, right? It's, it's, it's like it's what, yeah. There's it's like, there's the French influence and um and yeah, also some Caribbean influence as well. So you do have you different. You have more of a um, predominance of lighter skinned people in New Orleans than you would see in other places across the country. And like in New Orleans, you know, um, you can kind of you kind of assume just because people, even though people are light skinned, you can kind of assume and you can know that they're black, but I remember when we moved to Connecticut, people would ask my mom all the time if she was biracial because she's very fair. And no one would have ever asked her that in New Orleans because it's just so common. Right. You know, but, um, but yeah, so the, so, so that was that book that I wrote in, um, what was that one called? It was actually called A Kind of Freedom. Oh. No joke. And, um, so, and I'll, I'll explain that in, in a second. And so, um, I did that. We came back. I went to law school, became a lawyer, you know, worked at a firm for a couple of years. And then my firm, um, I didn't know it at the time, but th- the firm was going bankrupt. And so they offered us these incentives to leave so that they wouldn't have to lay people off because that would have signaled to the legal world that they were going bankrupt. So I took an incentive and I, um, I, I went back to that book called you, A Kind of Freedom. You became which, a full-time poet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, and so I started working on that book and I worked on that book for four years and it was still called a kind of freedom, but it was still about the Dominican Republic and this girl in the Dominican Republic. And it never went anywhere. I mean, I got an agent, but she, um, she couldn't do anything with that book. And, and I still don't know. I haven't read it in a long time, so I'm not sure how good that book is, you know, but at the time I thought it was the book and I thought it was amazing. And I was just, I put everything into that book. And then I, um, I was introduced to this editor, Jane Vandenberg, who runs this program called, well, she runs it through Jirasi, but it's called the year long narrative. And she takes, um, you write 30 pages a month. And then by the end of the year, you would have a book. And each time you send her the 30 pages each month, she edits them for you. And so I was introduced to her by my sister-in-law and, um, I thought, well, I didn't really want to do it because I had already written my book. Mind you, I, I knew that was the book. So I didn't really want to do it, but I thought, well, I don't have anything else going on. So I'll just do it. And so after a few months of writing with her, writing this current book that's out, um, it just started to click. I just knew that this was the story and she was very encouraging. And, um, so we, we kind of finished that process in about four or five months really soon. Yeah. Really, really fast. And, um, but see, by that point you'd written entire books, you'd sort of road tested titles. I think that's what it was. I think I had done it before. So I, I had, you know, I, I had put in a lot of effort before and I was seeing the, the, um, fruit of it in this, in this quick process, relatively quick process. And the book in the beginning was called early in the morning. And, um, and then one day the book that's out now was called early in the morning. And then one day my editor said, um, well, my editor ended up giving it to her husband, who is the, um, head of counterpoint, Jack Shoemaker. And, um, I ended up, you know, signing with him. And one day he called me like, you know, we're still working on edits, but the book's almost out. He called me and he said, 
you know, what's the name of that book again? Early in the evening, late at night. I can't, nobody can remember the title. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's early in the morning. And he said, well, nobody can remember it. So, you know, you need to have another one. And so the funny thing was a kind of freedom never worked for that other book. It just wasn't, I liked the title because I liked that epigraph, that Edward P. Jones epigraph that's in there. And I thought it fit the, the theme of the story I wanted to tell, but, um, it never really fit for the Dominican Republic story. So I thought of titles for, you know, about a week and I couldn't think of anything. And I, fi- I kept going back to a kind of freedom, but I thought, is that weird to, to transpose these titles? But I, I did it. And I mean, as soon as I told the editor, he was like, that's it. That's the title. And so now we have a kind of freedom. And now the funny thing is about this story, my husband and I, when I was trying to get the first book out, that wasn't really going anywhere. The book about the Dominican Republic, my husband and I would write a kind of freedom. My husband does um, like uh, bubble letters, graffiti art kind of stuff, just in his spare time. And he would write a kind of freedom and post notes all over the house, a kind of freedom, a kind of freedom. And I would write down a kind of freedom in affirmations because I was trying to have this book be, be materialized. And it's funny because Maybe that's, that's the what book I need to do. that came out. <laughs> I'm going to start writing in bubble letters. Right. <laughs> It's the, it's the trick, people. Uh-huh. You heard it here first, uh-huh. but it worked. It something worked, okay. and so that was that was an aspect of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Did, did mm-hmm. it uh, did it live up? Like, I mean, I know as writers, especially when we're debuting or we've been working on a book for a long time, and we've had entire manuscripts come and yeah. go, um, and then finally, like, you're holding your book, and it's a th- it's an object in the world. Like, you've done it. Mm-hmm. You've birthed the thing. Did it live up? You know, because you imagine these things yeah. prior to it happening. Like, is there any kind of anticlimax, or for you, was it like, was it all that? I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot. You know, there are moments in this process that have been climactic. But so I'll talk about those. For instance, the first time I saw a galley, uh-huh. I went to this booksellers dinner, and there were galleys at every um, at every setting, at every place setting. And I hadn't seen the galley before. I'd seen the cover just in an email. And I was blown away by, and overwhelmed by that. So that was a moment. Because um, that, that's really the first time an author sees like book objects. Yeah. You know. That was a moment. I mean, I, I was like, oh, wow, this is happening. And I remember I called my dad and I went home and saw my husband. And I was very, very happy about that. And then, um, and then there was a moment... Um, I think the first positive review, maybe, I think it was like Huffington Post says it's one of 24 books for the, for the summer or something like that. And I was like, oh, my God, that was a moment. You know, there have been moments. And then the last moment I had was the New York Times review, which was positive. And so those. And of, and of course, sitting here on the other people podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, but in doing these interviews. No, you're right. But so there are moments along the way where I'm like, whoa, this is happening. But I would say because the process is so structured and so linear that you kind of it just becomes every step along the way becomes the logical next step. So you don't kind of appreciate how surreal it is because you know what's coming and it's just kind of laid out for you in such a structural way. So, you know, I knew after they picked the cover, we were going to have galleys made. And, you know, I knew that. Once I, we had the galleys, then we're going to move on to hardcover. So moving on to hardcover, for instance, that didn't make me feel, you know, that much because I had seen the galley. Right. So it's it's that's that's what I would say. But in terms of in terms of the feeling I have that the dream that I nurtured for so long because it was a lo- it was a long time where I was doing this and I just saw no I saw nothing coming out of it. The feeling I have is just such 
a, such an intense feeling of satisfaction and gratitude. And I'm not just, I'm not saying that just to say that I think about it sometimes. And I just have like a, a very centered, um, almost tangible feeling of gratitude and satisfaction because I, I just, I just can't, I can't believe it. And then also I just feel so on purpose because it's exactly what I wanted and it happened, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's where, and like, this is the thing about writing is that for all of its difficulties, for all of the challenges there uh, that come along with trying to make a living from it, especially, yeah, uh, it is work that is deeply meaningful to do, even if 10 people read it, even That's if a right. hundred people, you know what I'm saying? That's like, right. For the people for whom it means something, it really means something. Yeah. And the act of doing the work, the act of like grinding uh, day after day and writing this book and going through all those different drafts and iterations of it, um, it, it's, uh, it works on your soul. It's a good way to spend. I think it's a, it's a good way for a human being to spend time. I think you're right. I mean, I'm working on something now and I normally meditate, you know, I try to meditate every day and I haven't had time because this, this marketing stuff is no joke. And then, um, I, but I've been writing when I can in the morning and I was like, you know, I don't think I need to meditate on the days that I'm writing because you, it just feels so healing and you just feel so in touch with what, whatever that force is that you're trying to touch well, it's, and it's tap into concentrated attention. Yeah. And I, like, I always joke, I was always joking, uh, you know, cause I, m- I remember reading an essay by Kurt Vonnegut where mm-hmm. he was like writing in like the late sixties or the seventies about how his wife and daughter were getting into transcendental meditation. Okay. But he was like, what is this? This uh-huh. Maharishi guy's asking for money. And like, they're like, my wife and daughter are like beaming at me all the time because uh-huh. they're so happy. Right. He's like smoking his palm oils. Uh-huh. And I'm like, you know what? But like smoking cigarettes, which I sadly used to do, mm-hmm. that's like, you know, it's kind of meditation. It just involves 4,000 toxic chemicals because uh-huh. you take a smoke break. Yeah. You stop what you're doing and you and just And that's sit probably and, what people are interested in more bra- than the smoking itself. Bra- it's I mean, just the habit of that. And, and just and, like leave the office, step outside into the alley, yeah. you know, whatever it is. But yeah. uh, I can see that, you know, and uh, I, I feel like writing and reading. Yeah. You know, especially in the world that we live in now, you know, with all these screens and everything, um, you know, that feels good. It feels good to, to focus and to have that quiet kind of internal time and to like be paying attention, um, so carefully. Right. You know, but, uh, I was going to ask you, and like, this is a natural uh, moment to do so. Like what spiritually, where are you? Like, cause, um, I know, you know, when you're growing up in, in New Orleans and in Louisiana, I know this firsthand, like it's a very vibrant spiritual culture mm-hmm. in Louisiana in ways that maybe, um, you know, it's not the case in say Los Angeles or at least not so overtly. Right. You, I, I really feel it when I'm down there. And like, I, I always say too, like, I mean, there's a lot of really intense ideological Christianity in the South. Um, that can sometimes unnerve me a little bit, Yeah. but there's also all this social reinforcement, like everybody's sort of, or not everybody, but so many people are really into it. And like, it's such a part of the culture. So did that affect you as a kid? Were you raised with that? I was raised Catholic like you. I think you said you were raised Catholic. I was. Yeah. yeah. So I was raised Catholic as well and went to, you know, went to church every Sunday and, um, observed Lent and all of that. And, um, and ate fish on Friday, you know, all of that stuff. And my mom still goes to church on Sunday, Catholic church. You know, I've tried, I, I, um, I, I do consider myself to be very spiritual. I meditate and I pray. And, um, I, uh, I also still read the Bible pretty heavily. Um, what's your favorite? Do you have like favorite? Yeah. I, I like the gospels 
And I like um, Paul's letters a okay. lot. Um, also Psalms. Yeah. Um, I need to read the Bible. Well, it's helpful. And I, I think it's especially helpful if you have an analytical mind. So you're not just, um, you know, regurgitating or just kind of, rep- you know, repeating what you've been told about the Bible. If, and if you're just not taking it all in without any kind of filter, they got I an, think... They got an audio book for the Bible? Can I can I get this yeah. <laughs> Listen to it at work. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's actually a good idea. I wonder if I should do that. But um, Read by James Earl Jones or something. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? That'd be very soothing to Mor- go to sleep to that. Or like Morgan Freeman. Oh, uh-huh. He's the voice of God. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so I, I still have that. That's actually not something I learned. Well, maybe I, I always say I think faith is a muscle. So I think just the, the fact that I grew up Catholic just kind of prepared me to, to, to be spiritual in some way. But at home, we're in a, we're in a Christian church now. But, um, you know, I've done everything. I, I did a, um, before I joined this church, I, um, was in a more, you know, spiritually, like spiritual new age community. And um, they mean? accepted everything. They accepted aspects of Christianity and Buddhism and, um, you know, Judaism. And I mean, every everything was welcome. And um, what was it, it reminded me of Unitarianism. Uh, it's it, it's it's religious science. But I hesitate to say that because people think Scientology or they think Christian science. And it's not that okay. it's really just it's really just what I described. I mean, they believe God is in all of us and God is everywhere and it's very new age and it's, you know, it's, it's very like Bay area. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there, there's like a, one of these churches on every corner in the Bay area. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, it is very Bay area. So I was a part of that for many years and I would have, I would have stayed with that because I could, you know, I like, I like that it, that was, that it was accepting of, um, of, of many people's denominations but you could also nurture your own. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I like that. And I like the idea too, that these are all paths up the same mountain. Right. So it's like, wouldn't it make sense that there's a little bit of something to be, to be gained from all of them? Yeah. We shouldn't be rigidly fixed on one. Yeah. Or think that we've, we've got the right one. Right. Now if that church that I was at, you know, my minister left. And so I, you know, it just, it didn't work out for logistical reasons. So I tried it. I I tried something new and now I'm in a Christian church, but I would have stayed because I thought I could still nurture my own spirituality and my own religious beliefs in there. But it was just, it was just a safe place for everyone to do that. And I I thought that was great and I really liked it and I miss it. Okay. Yeah. You, You go on Sunday every Sunday? Oh, absolutely not. I wish I did. I mean, I hope my relatives aren't listening to this, but, um, with all those children, you know, I have two four-year-old twins and then I have the baby. And so for the first two months of the baby's life, you know, I didn't want to take him to a public place like church because people are so in, in his space whenever they see him. And especially in a place like that, you know, people would just want to touch him and hold him. So then I kind of got out of the habit. We probably go once a month. I would say we go once a month. That's still pretty good. It's okay. I'd like to go more because I want the kids to have it be like a habit for them. Uh That's really my goal with that. And also I feel better when I go. But this church that I'm going to now is about three hours. So it is a commitment. It's but I mean, I when I get there from the time that I get there and from the time that I leave, it's about and a lot of it is, you know, after after church, we're going to go to the park and gather because it's um, it's our fifth year anniversary. It's always something. And so, um, it ends up being, which, you know, I, so which that's, is great. That's, so that's like three weeks. That's like basically like you go three weeks a month. Yeah. You, you hit it once you get three hours in. Uh-huh. So you're doing uh-huh. good. Yeah. And, I'm trying. And what about I'm meditation? What, what kind of meditation are you doing? I don't know. I mean, I, I just, 
I have taken meditation classes, but they were pretty loose. And so I just, I really just, you know, quiet the mind and go within, but I don't know what you would call it. Okay. And I don't know, um, I don't know, you know, yeah, what type it is, but I do know that I can tell when I don't do it. I can tell when I miss it. Yeah. I'm just more reactive. I remember I was doing it for a long time every day, maybe like a year. I did it every single day. And then one day I think the twins woke up early or something happened and I didn't do it. And I went downstairs. I was in my dad's house and I went downstairs and he said something to me and I just reacted. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's weird. Where did that come from? Right. And normally if I had been meditating, there would have been a space before I reacted where I could have just watched the <laughs> comment go by, yeah. decided what I wanted to say, you and, know what I then, mean? And then lashed out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which would have been a bit right. delayed by three seconds. <laughs> it's, yeah, I know. It's like, to me, I always like, I liken it uh, to like, cause I meditate pretty much every day. Oh, okay. So, so you, yeah, it's gotcha. like, it's like flossing. It's like brushing your teeth. Yeah. Like you notice when you don't do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> sort of. So what benefits have you seen? I mean, th this is the thing. Like I find it sort of humbling cause like I will slip. I mean, like we're human beings, mm -hmm, you know, course. but I'll have moments where I'm just such a sh shit Yeah. or I just, my temper gets the better of me yeah. or like I get into some, you know, like pattern argument with my wife or it was yeah. like, the same thing. And it's like, yeah, am I not supposed to be improving? Like, am I not, I, I want to be better than I am. Yeah. But I guess that's like sort of a trap too. Cause then I'm not happy with how things oh, actually are. I know. Are. Right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm doing the best I can, but I, I know, and I, you know, you have to just sort of start where you are. That's like one of the things that I tell yeah. myself and, yeah, you know, but I feel like, uh, there's been a process throughout my adult life where going back because it started when I was in my early twenties mm -hmm. and to greater and lesser degrees during that decade, I think I was dabbling and I was doing it and then I wasn't doing it. And then I really started to do it. Wow. And then I would fall off. And then, you know, yeah. but when you, or at least for me, like I would just notice, I started, you start to notice like, Oh, like that things are, things tend to go worse when I'm not doing this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it just be slowly convinced me of its, uh, necessity. And like, I consider it like foundational behavior. Like mm -hmm. I don't just the way that I'm wired, like I'm better yeah. off. I'm a better person when this is the way I start my day. Yeah. I'm know? the same way. But having said that I haven't done it since I had my son. Well, I've done it. My, my five month old, I've done it. Um, maybe three or four times since I had my five month old, maybe five times. But, you know, I used to do it for years. I did it every day. Yeah. And I think, you know, you always have a reason, right? My reason this time is because I'm waking up all the time with him. He's still not sleeping. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like I'm too tired to meditate, but I really, you know, I've been saying that for five months and I really need to get back on it because it's so, it's so helpful. But on the other hand, like I said, even the writing, you know, even just doing that every morning Having would be some, great too. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. and I think too, like I tell myself, cause I get, live this busy life. Um, you know, but they, they, they say like every part of your life can become practice. Like whether you're washing, yeah. washing dishes or walking through the office or, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So yeah, like, absolutely. then you can sort of try to integrate it into like every day and it gives, gives me less less of an excuse. You know right. Like, right. Like, like I, there's that's always my time. Ideal. I know that I was, I think about that a lot too. I wish, and I think at some point that that will happen, you know, um, Kid, kids, kids throw a monkey wrench into a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, I will say having the twins made my life because I was home with them. I was writing, but I was home with them too. And, um, having the twins made it so that many moments of the day were meditation. And I really think that, 
that just changed having them change my life, but also the the process of, of raising them has changed my life because, you know, they're, who knows what they're going to do in the next minute, these babies, you know, you just always have to be living in the moment with these kids. And so I would say that had a really big impact and, and it kind of maybe decreased the need to, to be as structured about making the time every day. Although I think it still is necessary for me. Yeah. Well, but. I mean, you know, these things work themselves out. If you have, I think if you have some sort of sense of commitment to it, you know, as the kids get older and time. Yeah. I mean, twins and, uh, what's your, your other child? He's five months. Oh my God. See, yeah. So you got your hands full. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do. I do. I'm impressed that you're writing books and publishing oh. books. Oh, well, thank Three you. Kids. Thank you. Um, I think they helped me with that too. And I, I think it makes you more efficient. Have you noticed that having yeah. kids makes you more efficient? So if you only have two hours, you're going to make the most of the two hours. You're not going to be on Facebook. Although that's tempting. I'm on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> I'm on, but the, the thing is I'm on Twitter when I'm like rocking my son to bed. Oh yeah. And like, it's dark and like, he's sort of in between wakens. Yeah. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Like, just, yeah, that's a perfect time to do it. That's a perfect time to yeah. just fall into distraction and <laughs> like feel the anger of the American people, <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, that's, I guess like my social media vice, but I'm not on Facebook. So you like Twitter better than Facebook. Twitter to me is the, if there is such a, it's the social media of the writers. Okay. Because it's like, you know, it's a, there's a, it is a literary form in its own weird way. This I guess you're right. Compressed character limit. And, yeah. um, I don't know, like to me, I can, I can deal with it. It's often very funny. It's also like a very jokey medium. Yeah. Whereas like Facebook and Instagram drive me so, I'm not on either of those. Okay. Okay. I don't, I'm not a Snapchat person. No, I've never done that. I don't that. know how to snap. I, th- I or... think we're, I think we're beyond, I mean, in terms of age. <laughs> Don't underestimate me. I could go back at any moment and start okay. snapping with people. Okay. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think in a perfect world, like one of these like things that I have been thinking about lately is I read somewhere like, like, you know, try to live your day. Like what would a really wise person do? Hmm. How would a really wise person hmm. like react to this situation? Oh yeah. Conduct themselves? And I'm huh. like, I am not a really wise person. Right, a lot like, of it. I have no idea. I can't even imagine. <laughs> well, but I also find myself thinking like, I don't think a really wise person would be spending his or her time on Twitter. I mean, unless I guess in certain circumstances, maybe as like a communication tool or something like to get some serious message out. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that question stops yeah, me. Like, yeah. Would a really wise person be having a glass of wine with dinner? At uh-huh. night? <laughs> <laughs> So it's a high standard, you know, it's a it high, is. but like, I would love to be a really wise person. I'd love to really get this life thing, uh, down, you know, same here. Wouldn't that be nice? It, w- it would be Get my shit together. <laughs> Gotta try, you know, and, and also like to be a good parent and an example. And, oh yeah. You know, and there's, that you know, raises the stakes like, and like life and death, like, yeah, we're going to die. Like, I want to be good at that. Yeah. I don't want to be all afraid. I want to get it right and yeah. like be an example so that my kids don't get all, f- you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like yeah. I, I feel that responsibility. Yeah. Well, I was reading that, um, I was reading that people, you know, of course everyone fears death when they're far from it. And then as it approaches, when people know that it's approaching, they suddenly feel a peace about it. Let's hope so. Yeah. That's Who what, told you that? It, it was a, it was a reputable study. Oh really? Yeah, it was. Um, 
they just I mean, I guess when you know it's coming, it's kind of like anything like I, I get nervous for readings. And then when I'm actually reading, I'm fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? The closer I get to the event I'm anticipating, the better I feel about it, the calmer I feel about it, because it's here, you know, and I, were you I imagine, nervous about this before you came over. Not as much this because I had done. I like one on one conversations, yeah. but I was very nervous about my reading last night. And I, I get nervous for all my readings, even yeah. though I love reading. Uh-huh. And as soon as I start talking, I'm fine. But I don't. And it's funny because um, I know how to read. Right. It's just reading. Right. <laughs> so it's like, what are you nervous about? <laughs> you got this. But yeah. Well, but um, I was reading about people approaching death. Uh huh. They do these studies where like they can go into like UCLA Medical Center and like take like a uh, psilocybin, have these big, you know, powerful psychedelic experiences oh yeah and the results of the scientific study because this is all done in a controlled environment yeah like but they people uh say that it has an enormously like on the average like the overwhelming majority of people who did it say they came out of it feeling like much more at peace that it was one of the most powerful experiences of their life i saw that study yeah yeah so maybe that's what i need to do i know that's (laughs) what i'm thinking when i'm in my 80s and you know i've I've made it that far then I'll just try that. And then you'll be like, hey, to, to all your classmates at Taft, you'll be like, hey, what's up, guys? <laughs> Guess what I'm doing now? Right. <laughs> just a late bloomer. Uh-huh. All your friends from Bethel, be like, what's up? <laughs> uh-huh. You know, so it's, it's fascinating to try to, I, I don't know. I just, I think we have uh, maybe similar feelings about trying to get the spiritual part of life, if that's what, mm-hmm. you, if that's what you call it. Um, in order or to like pay attention to it. Yeah. And I'm always amazed, like having said that, I'm, I'm amazed by people who go through life and seem to be like much more, um, easygoing maybe than I am who have none of that. Well, yeah. I wonder how, I wonder how they tether themselves. I, right. I think about that a lot because I have people in my own family who are like that. And I just wonder when hard times come, and I'm not judging, I'm seriously wondering. Yeah. When hard times come, what do they turn to? Because I know for me, if I didn't have what I turned to, it would be quite damaging for me when hard times come, you know? Right. Well, just like, yeah. I, I, like maybe they have some internal anchor, just like some sort of natural internal anchor that I don't have. Or... Well, I wonder if they, sometimes I wonder if they have the same thing, but they don't know what it's called. Like, they they think that it's their own internal anchor and maybe it's like the collective internal anchor that we're all trying to reach when we're meditating, but they think it's just personal to them or something. Yeah. Because I feel like they have to have something, you know, or otherwise, how would they be doing it? Because yeah. we're all hit in life, you know. M- Margaret's next book will be called The Collective Internal Anchor, by the way. Ladies I like and that <laughs> title. That's a good one. That's a good one. I like that. Um, yeah. And I'm also like, I, I read about these people. I don't know if you've ever read about these people who... Uh, you know, for most of us, like you meditate and it's supposedly like, you know, two steps forward, one step, uh, one step back. And it's this very gradual process. But if you put in the work, um, you're going to see improvements over a lifetime and hopefully, you know, you, you, uh, you stick with it and it bears real fruit over the course of decades. But then there are these stories about people who, you know, will have this enlightenment experience, like all of a sudden. I've seen that. And I'm like, damn, that would be nice. That's efficient. Yeah. So now what are you, what's an example of that, that you've seen? Oh, if you can I, like, think of one. Well, I mean, it's like reading about, um, 
a, a lot of reading about like these old Indian sages. Like, okay, I, I yeah. For, I forget the because like, yeah. it's this long like it's like, like nineteen syllables. Yeah, but it's like Rama Shaman, you know, like Indian name. Yeah, and, and, I've I've seen that, and then I, I I remember a story of a guy who um and he's a popular spiritual writer, but I can't remember his name, but um he said that happened to him. He said one day he just kind of it was it's almost, Eckhart Tolle, right? Maybe. And it's like the air went out of a balloon or whatever. And like, I just, my mind just stopped this chattering. Yeah, and, you're right. That's I, who it is. And then, yeah. But, and then like this, you know, that's the thing is that there are many stories very similar yeah. throughout history where it's like this kid in India, he was like 18 or 19. It's like, he had some sort of like, quite, he like asked himself some question about like death or life. And then like, suddenly it was just like, and he then like went to a cave and like sat for like three years. Right. And then like suddenly like students started appearing. And I'm like, damn. Wow. Why didn't that happen for me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want the air to go out of the balloon. I know. All this work. I know. I know. Yeah. And then I met this woman who, um, I think this happened to her, but again, it seems like there's this isolation that goes with it because she was isolated for years, just in her own home. She didn't go into a cave. But she was in her own home studying this stuff and, and just like, you know, seeing visions and all this stuff that would go with that level of spiritual development. And um, and that's what I don't think I want. I don't think I want that. I want to be. In see, a- I want to live in a cave. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to see anybody. Uh-huh. Just do this podcast once a week. <laughs> yeah, you would come out to do this, of course. <laughs> just that's it. Someone yeah. comes over once a week and we have a conversation. And then the rest of the time I'm just sort of sitting here. Right. <laughs> but I think like some of that too is like... a. You know, it's, it's like balance in life. You know, like I'm just, especially with kids, you're just so busy. Yeah. Job, kids, yeah. work, family, the weekends. Like you just, you know, it's so, it's so nice to just sit down, just yeah. shut the fuck up and just be quiet. It is. Like sometimes I'll go to an appointment and, um, you know, a doctor's appointment or something where they make you wait 40 minutes. Yeah. And I'm just so glad to be sitting there <laughs> for the 40 minutes. We'll be on a plane. And they'll be like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, oh no, take your time. No, I, I'm fine. I've, I've fallen asleep in a dental chair while getting my teeth cleaned. Yep. I believe it. And people are like, the I doctor's like, are, are, you, are you sleeping? I'm like, dude, you don't realize this chair is comfortable. Right. I need one. And of no these. one else is in there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just don't talk to me. Just let me have this moment. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm, you know, and I'm also fascinated uh, by people who have, it seems like it's just innate, you know, like life for certain people. I mean, like we all suffer. We all struggle. Yeah. Nobody's got, uh, nobody rides for free. That's right. A buddy of mine said that to me the other day. And it I made, like that. Made me feel better. You yeah. Because it was like, ah, you know what? I like that. Nobody rides for free. Yeah. Everybody's got stuff. Yeah. And it's, and if they don't have it now, they're going to have it. You're right. You know? You're right. And if you don't think they have it, you just can't see it. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, there are people, you know, it's hard not to see some sort of sense of, uh, or not, not to feel some sense of destiny in them. Like I'm reading uh, this biography of Muhammad Ali right now. Really? Yeah. It's coming out. I got a galley. Oh, wow. And like I've always, I, I love him. Cause he, yeah. he to me is like the marriage of like incredible athletic achievement and like poetry Yeah, and like comedy. He's, he's, yeah. he's a, he's a one-off. Like there's never been anybody in the world of sports for sure. Like anything yeah. like that. Um, but you know, I'm reading, I'm in the part of his life now where he's just won the Olympic gold and he's turning pro. Uh huh. I mean, it was just like he was—he had it all, you know yeah. what I'm saying—in in his own yeah. way. 
Um, and it was just like, man, he just kind of knew like, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Like the world is out in front of me. Like he had this confidence and like this glow and he's such a beautiful guy. Like, yeah. You know, like, yeah. I'm fascinated by, um, the way certain lives, they just feel sort of like, uh, charted special. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I got you on that. I was, I was watching this, um, well, first I'll say, I just saw this clip of Muhammad Ali. Someone asked him, they were interviewing him and they asked him how many bodyguards he had. Did you see that? No. And he said, he was like pretending to count on his hands. And then he started just delivering this poem. He was like, I have one bodyguard and it's the one who sees it all, but has no eyes. And it was just more of this stuff, like lines and lines of it. I don't know if he memorized it or if it was just coming straight through him at that moment. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's talking about his Allah, his, um, you know, his God. And I was like, Whoa, this, that when you said the marriage of comedy, poetry, and then of course his athletic ability, that's what I immediately thought of. Cause I just saw this clip and spirituality, right? Like exactly. he, was a, he was a deep soul. Exactly. Yeah. He was, he was awesome. Uh, so it's been, it's just interesting to read about him. And I guess when you're reading a biography of somebody who's achieved a lot, you know, they, they don't get everything. So, I know. And it's told beautifully in like this narrative way. So, okay. Well, I mean, you know, it's a book. Yeah. So I'm my, excited to read it then. Cause I don't know much about him, but yeah, yeah, he's a cool dude or he was a cool dude. Yeah. And, uh, I, I know people just loved him. I would, I would love to read that. Okay. That's good to know that it's coming out. I gotta, I gotta remember the author. I'm going to hopefully get a chance to talk to him, but okay. Anyway, so, uh, you got another book in the works? I'm working on something now. Um, I described it for someone yesterday at my reading and I heard myself describe it and I thought that doesn't sound very interesting, <laughs> but I, I really think it's, I think it's fascinating. I think it was just an off description, but, um, it's hard to describe a book. Yeah, it is. I had this one down though. This one you would describe it and people would say, Oh, but the, the one that I'm working on now is, um, it's about three kids who go to boarding school together. One gets kicked out. The other two marry each other. And, and it's going to be told chronologically, I think, in in blocks of voices as opposed to weaving in and out blocks of these three voices. And um, and then all three come together at the end when their children get arrested. And um, it's going to tap into the Black Lives Matter movement and um, some other issues that I like to write about, you know, race related mostly. Yeah. Yeah, I got that. You got it. Yeah, okay, I got that's it. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can listen to this tape. You can you can listen to this playback if you need to practice and get you know the uh, okay the summary down. But that okay. was I, I follow you. I got okay. it. Okay, good to know. Well, it's great to, to meet you and get oh, a chance so great to, to meet you too. To sit down. Congratulations on this book, and uh, I wish you all the very best on the rest of your tour with your three kids. Um, with all that you have going on. Thank you. I appreciate that, and so nice to talk to you. All right, guys, there you go. That is Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. Her new novel is called A Kind of Freedom and is available from Counterpoint Press. Uh, you can find her online on Facebook. I don't think she has a website. I couldn't find it. Am I missing it? Is Google failing me? Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, A Kind of Freedom. Go get your copy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the Other People app. Go get that. It's free. It's the best way to listen. If you want to email me, let me know what you're thinking about. Tell me a story. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. So six years in the books, the Other People podcast surges forth into its seventh year of existence.
And, you know, it's, uh, I don't want to overstate it. I mean, I know there are people in this world that have a lot more going on than I do. I want to try to, you know, make my busyness sound worse than it is or sound like some sort of, like, you know, Herculean task. But it is, it seems to be a common plague, right? It's a thing that I think a lot of us are thinking about. Do you know the Chinese symbol for busy is a uh, heart killing? Like, that's what the pictographic combo is heart killing busy that's comforting <laughs> killing my heart I'm doing violence to myself trying to figure out my de- what like what my deepest self likes just do that quiet life move to New Zealand live in the woods would I be happier then there's like that Ralph Waldo Emerson quote that I can't remember where it's like, you know, you move. It's not going to change anything. Physical location doesn't change anything. It's all between your ears. It's in your spirit. So just stay where you are. Stay in Los Angeles. Stay where it's busy and crowded and expensive. Sunny all the time. There's a reason why there's 10 million people here. It's not because it sucks. Or maybe it does suck. Maybe I don't realize how good people have it elsewhere. Maybe I would be happier living in the woods. I don't know. Fuck! <laughs> I need to go on a vision quest and sort this out. I need to have a moment of epiphany. moment of incredible clarity. Bursts. Like a firecracker in my mind. It clears away all the cobwebs. Explodes. In a blinding flash of light. From which I find myself emerging. Into a new, into a new realm of existence. Where the land rolls out before me and the horizon is clear. So, it's all this stuff I gotta work out. Try to go inward, try to do some diving, figure out what my deepest self likes. I've had this thinking lately in my, you know, I've thought, thought this before, but I feel like if I could ever write the way that I talk, that's what I need to figure out how to do. I don't think I've ever quite done that. So I'm thinking, like, maybe I should try to just write a book in the exact same voice that I write, or, you know, in the, in the exact same voice that I would do a monologue. Try to capture that somehow. Like, write it as if I'm going to speak it. And maybe I do speak it. But it's a book. <laughs> Am I making any sense here? But what would I say for that, like, length of time? Because to do it that way would mean that I would basically be creating like a, you know, an eight-hour monologue. What the fuck am I going to say for eight hours? I mean, be honest with yourself. Does the idea of an eight-hour monologue for me scare you? Because it probably should. Does anybody need to hear me talking for eight hours? That's basically what a book by me would be. And I've written one. But that was like a lifetime ago. I don't even know the person who wrote that book. I was in my 20s. I'm wrestling with shit, clearly, in the waning days of summer. Bring on the fall. (laughs) 